message from God's Word is from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, not 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, chapter 4. Yes, I know we're studying the book of 1 Timothy, so Richard, why are we going to 2 Timothy? Well, there's a, a strong correlation between the two, and particularly Paul's charge to Timothy in the first letter, chapter 6, verse 12, which we've talked about the past two weeks, fight the good fight of the faith. He tells Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So Timothy's a pastor and he's telling Timothy, you have to fight for the faith. You have to guard your doctrine. Flee from sin. Run to your Savior, Timothy. This is going to be a fight and there's eternal consequences. You have to persevere. So it's interesting that in the second letter to Timothy, he uses the same metaphor to describe his own life. Paul's about to die. And he says these words. He writes these words to Timothy. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. This word has been kept for you by the Holy Spirit for this morning. Hear this good word, starting in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but, to, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen. Please be seated. Because spiritual truth is spiritually discerned, we need the Lord's help. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune God, we pray that you would apply this word to our hearts. Lord, your word is dangerous. It cuts like a knife into our souls. We pray that your word would not only cut, but encourage us as well. This morning, let us understand it, and let it be real in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Our assurance in the fight is the name of the sermon. Paul sounds very sure that he will be with God forever. We'll look at the present, the past, and the future. In these verses, we have all three tenses as we look at Paul's assurance in the fight at the end of his life. What do I mean by that? Well, in verse 8, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He sounds very confident of this reward that he's going to receive. This is a confidence we all yearn for if we're in Christ. But I want to explore what it is about Paul's experience, his life, his psyche, how he thinks, that gave him such confident assurance, such security. I think in these few verses we can learn much about his reasons for security. But notice, uh, just as a quick overview of these three verses, notice the tenses of the verses. Paul goes from the present tense... I am already. It doesn't get more present than that. I am already. 
to the past tense, I have fought, I have run, I have kept. To the future, Christ will award me. Now, this is no coincidence. It's not just like, Paul's not like you just, I think I'll write a letter, and he sits down and starts writing without any forethought. That's not how Paul writes. That's not how the the Bible comes together at all. Besides the fact that it's all inspired by the Holy Spirit and it's all perfectly true, Paul was brilliant. By the time he was 21, he had the equivalent of two, maybe three PhDs by the time he's 21. He's brilliant. And the Jews did not just give these out. These were difficult, difficult degrees of study. He knew the Greek language as well as any scholar. You could hold him up next to anyone for his, his intellectual mind. He knew Hebrew. He probably knew Latin very well as well as Aramaic. So when you read what Paul wrote here, don't think that, oh, he's just writing a letter and it just, he's just making a, a minor point. This is all, all these tenses, it's all deliberate. Paul goes from present to past to future for a reason. It's because his, his salvation is bound up in his whole life in Christ. And it's very certain, past, present, and future. And it's the same for all of us. Our salvation, if you're in Christ, has been a certainty from times immemorial. Ephesians 1 says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. From all eternity, God chose his own. But it's also a present reality. 1 Corinthians 15, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. That's today. And in the future, of course, we yearn, we pray like, John, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. We know that he will come again in glory and save us. You remember God's name is, as revealed to Moses, I am that I am, the ever-present, always God. Jesus is called in Hebrews 13.8, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Paul, looking back on all of his life and at his present circumstances, has great hope and confidence that he will be with the Father forever. Why do we say that? Look at verse 12. Let's start there. That's actually not right. Let's look at verse 6. <laughs> verse 6. Verse 12 wouldn't make any sense. Talk about Tychius. In verse 6 he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I am already. Paul looks back at the life he lived and from the world's perspective, his life must have seemed foolish to outsiders. He has all of this potential, all of these these giftings, and he spent his entire adult life striving for a few small churches scattered over Europe and the western part of Asia. All of his great learning, all of his potential to be somebody in the Jewish council, it all seemed, from the world's perspective, wasted. He's in jail, he's about to die. And yet Paul seems to 
think that he has great confidence that none of it was wasted. That he's being poured out as a drink offering. And he speaks of this as if it's a great honor to be poured out for the Lord. He wears the agonies and disappointments of his ministry like a crown. I'm already being poured out. He's he's making a a metaphor with the drink offerings of the Old Testament. The sacrifices of the Old Testament. And specifically part of the daily sacrifice was the pouring of wine. The best wine you you could procure. Or in certain instances other strong drink. But you would pour it out on the altar. And it was supposed to be a, a pleasing incense to God. And he's saying he is being poured out in this same way upon the altar. But ultimately, this drink offering in the Old Testament points to Christ, to Jesus himself. Remember at the Passover meal, he said to his disciples in Luke twenty-two twenty, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It symbolizes Jesus giving all of himself as a sacrifice for lost and hopeless sinners. As the blood of a man is the life of a man, so Jesus gave himself. So Paul, of course, is a theologian. He's very well studied. He's a scholar. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew all of this perfectly. So he's saying, looking at his present circumstances and what looks like a great disaster, that he's being poured out like a drink offering, and he glories in this. It's a sweet aroma to the Lord, not a waste. What's a waste to him? What stinks to the Lord? He says all that the world stands for. He says he's cast it all aside. He's counted it as nothing. It's his dung. This is not the first time he said this either. In Philippians 2.17 he said, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul was more encouraged by his suffering that he was in the Lord. And that's the point I want you to take from this as application. If you are suffering now or in the future, often there's a very helpful relationship spiritually between our suffering and assurance. This has often been true for me. Has it ever been for you that in the moments and the times and the days that you really suffer, you know that God is with you? You know that he is wrapping his arms around you. He's saying, you are mine. I know you're suffering. You are mine. When we come to God in prayer, when we call out to our Father in the midst of our suffering, God meets us in a way that's special, in a way that's not every day. He comes to us and comforts us by his Holy Spirit and his word. He reminds us that we are His, that He owns us. He's redeemed us, and He loves us. And when you're not suffering, just communing with God daily in word and prayer, He also makes you increasingly aware over time that you are adopted as sons, so that when you do enter a time of suffering, these truths become even more real to you. So when persecution or trial or hardship comes in your life, we can constantly and confidently rest on Christ. 
This is why Paul wrote in Romans 8, No, in all things we are more than conquerors in our own power. No, through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. For those of us who have been adopted into the family of God, we have this confidence. Rich, poor, healthy, sick, doesn't matter. He has brought you to himself. And for this reason, all of us should desire to be poured out as a drink offering. All of us. A daily sacrifice to the Lord. To offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We should wake up thanking God for another day of life. Even in the midst of suffering and hardship. We should thank God that he has made us alive again for another day. To glorify him with our worship, with our bodies, with our lives. Paul said in 2 Corinthians twelve fifteen, I love this. That we should very gladly spend and be spent for Christ. It's the same idea. And this should be our attitude. So Paul looks at his life. He looks down at where he is in jail and he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And it gives me confidence that I'm God's. But he also looks backwards. This is the second point. He looks backwards for encouragement. That he will receive a crown of righteousness. In verse 7 he writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He's looking back at his life and he's saying, I've, I've done what God wanted me to do. I've done my duty. It reminds me of the parable when Jesus said, when a master has slaves and the slaves finish their work and they come into the house, does the master of the house say, hey, sit down and, and let me serve you. Let me make your meal. No, what does he say? He says, good work outside. Now make my supper. After everything we've done, all we can really say is, thank you, Lord, for calling me to yourself. And if I live for you, I've only done my duty to my loving God and Master. And Paul's not saying this out of a self-righteousness or prideful attitude at all. We know that because in 1 Timothy 2, what did he say? I'm the chief of sinners. And he's not just saying that to be eloquent. He really considered himself despicable in the eyes of a holy God, but for Christ. And that's a, a relationship that we will all see in our lives. The more we pursue God, the more we see God's holiness, the more we see our own sin and inadequacies, and the more we love our Savior because we know our own weakness. Paul's doing this. He's saying, despite the attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil, throughout my years of ministry, I've fought, I've finished, and I've kept I fought the good fight. We've discussed this so much over the past two sermons. I'm not going to go over it much, but Paul is basically saying he is like a soldier on a battlefield following his captain into war, and he never gave up. He never turned around and retreated. He kept running forward. You know, on a battlefield, the very worst thing you could ever do is turn around and run. The very worst thing you could ever do is to be a coward. It's much better to stand next to your brother, next to your sister beside you, and face the enemy together. Paul's saying, I've done this. I followed my captain, and I fought the good fight. 
That doesn't mean he didn't get injured. It doesn't mean every single little battle was won. He's just saying he's fought the good fight. And he's also finished the race. Often Paul compares the Christian life to a race as someone who really enjoys running, actually. Uh, This is always encouraging. Um, In Hebrews 12, he says, Therefore we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So let us throw off every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Runners in the Greek and Roman world were not much different than runners today. If you've ever been a runner, if you've ever had to run because you're in an organized sport, running is basically the same as it's always been. You take great pain and care in your training and your diet and your sleep. You get good rest. You do everything you can to win the race. You discipline your body. You live every moment to do well in that race. Once the race began, your goal was to win. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. So Paul is saying, I finished the race. He didn't say, I won the race. He said, I finished the race. But he ran in such a way as to win. So we don't know in our spiritual life whether we're going to win or not win, but we know that we will finish in Christ. In other words, we can't judge our own success, but we know that we can finish in Christ. Paul's goal was to finish. I remember when I was uh, training for, this is when I was a little younger, but I was training for a marathon. It's a long way to run, 26.2 miles. You always see the 26.2 on the back of the car, and you're like, why do you put the point two there? Like, just say 26, really? No, when you've run 26 miles, that point two, it's something. So that's why it's there. But I remember as I would train for that race, my girls were old enough to ride bikes, but they weren't big enough really to run with me. No, they probably could have, but they didn't. So they ride their bikes next to me. And we would run in all kinds of weather. It was actually in Hawaii when we were training, so the weather was pretty decent. Hot and muggy sometimes, but pretty decent. But what we noticed was sometimes the wind would be blowing right in your face, and it was hard, or the sun just beating down on your head. It was difficult. What I found is that sometimes, as I would turn the corner, the wind would start pushing me a little bit. It would be at my back. And my daughters... Even though they weren't really into the training, they just wanted to spend time with dad. Having them there kept my feet moving. It just kept me going. I wanted to win. I didn't want to quit. In some strange way, I didn't want to disappoint my daughters. I wanted to finish that training that day. Paul's saying that when he looks at everything he's been through and all the great cloud of witnesses... He has actually run with his eyes fixed on Jesus, the race that was marked out for him. And all of us have a different race. In the Greek, it's it's written in such a way as that your race is slightly different than my race. We're all going to the same finish line through Christ, but all of our races are different. Some of you might suffer terribly on your race. You might have difficulties. Others of you might feel like it's just a little bit easier throughout your life. It's none of our business. It's like Jesus told Peter when Peter said, Hey, what about John? Is he going to suffer too? 
Jesus said, none of your business. You do your job. That's all of our attitudes. We run the race marked out for us. And Paul can look back on his life, his battle, his race. He's finished it. He's, he's finished the race. And God's given him great confidence. And finally, he says, I've kept the faith. So that's kind of a religious word or a religious phrase. I've kept the faith. What does Paul mean? I've kept the faith. You remember the whole of First and Second Timothy is about Timothy guarding sound doctrine. He's guarding the faith by living a righteous life in front of his church, a godly life, and guarding sound doctrine. Paul's saying, I've done that. I've kept the faith. And you read the book of Acts, and you see that Paul isn't a guy who just rolls over every time there's a disagreement. He calls out Peter. Peter, that's wrong. You cannot reject Gentiles just because Jews showed up. That's wrong. We're all saved by grace through faith in Christ. Paul was not one to ever back down when the essentials of doctrine were at stake. And at the end of his life, he can say, I've kept the faith. I haven't let go of a single shred of truth. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There's the power of God unto salvation. He had told Timothy to guard your life and doctrine closely and to persevere in them in 1 Timothy 4.16. And he says, I've done that. I've kept the faith. I've been a good steward. So that's looking backwards. J.C. Ryle writes, The Christian is happy as he quits the world who can leave such a testimony behind him as Paul did. A good conscience will not save any man. It will not wash away any sin, nor lift us one hair's breadth toward heaven. Yet a good conscience will be found a pleasant visitor at our bedside in a dying hour. There will be trouble in this world. We know that. And a Christian's going to have setbacks in the fight. He's going to be wounded. A Christian will stumble during the race. A Christian may even betray his faith at times, but not ultimately. Why? Because Jesus is with you. The Father has adopted you and saved you and purchased you. You are his, and he is faithful. So keep moving forward. Keep your feet moving. These aspects of life through the Holy Spirit's use of his word will increase your assurance that you are God's in this life. So live every day like it is your last day so that at the end of your life you can say like Paul, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, Paul looks to the future. This is the third point. He looks to his assurance. Look at verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. That's future. Our righteous judge will award me on that day. Paul has a certain hope that the Lord Jesus will award him eternal life. Driving up the Asheville Highway, I don't know if any of you saw, there's a small church and it had a sign and it says something like, get your ticket to heaven before it's too late. Just thought, what a crass, irreverent thing to write. Our salvation is not some ticket. It's, it's bound up in the whole triune God and the plan of God, the sacrifice of His Son, the application of His Spirit. It's a union with Christ. Take it to heaven. Kind of made me mad. 
Paul certainly doesn't view his future reward as some kind of thing to be pocketed. He says the Lord Jesus himself will award it to me. You see how personal that is. He served his Savior. He served his, his master as a faithful slave. He has followed hard after his king. And he sounds as certain of this as anything in his whole life. So I want to ask each one of you, do you have that kind of assurance right now? It's an old question. It's a pastor's favorite question sometimes. If you died today, are you certain where you would go? You should ask yourself that. It's the duty of every Christian to make your calling and election sure. But not of us, not all of us are going to have the same level of assurance. I want to talk about that for just a moment. Because it should be all of our desires to know that we are his. But you see, assurance is not the same as salvation. You can have salvation and not have assurance. And you can even have a false assurance and not have salvation. So it's important to think about it. Someone may not be saved at all and have a very certain assurance, albeit a false assurance. Someone can be truly saved and have no assurance for any number of reasons. But the faithful Christian should pray for and expect some degree of assurance of their salvation. Why? Because the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are his children. So as we study his word, as we remember his promises, the Holy Spirit says, this is yours. This is yours. Our confession takes the same view. The Shorter Catechism 36 says, The benefits which we have in this life from our salvation are the assurance of God's love. That's one of the benefits we have. And our perseverance there into the end. So first, those who have false assurance. Ryle says, people think well of themselves, often when God thinks ill. There are certainly those who falsely presume to have assurance. What does that look like? Well, it's kind of like many people in our culture, probably you, probably me at some time in my life as well. I had walked an aisle. I had signed a prayer card. I'd been baptized. My parents went to church. Or maybe you've been to church your whole life. And all these things you think, well, I'm, I'm certainly saved. And oh, by the way, then you have pastors saying, don't ever question that. Once God saves you, He saved you, don't ever look into it again. Well, certainly for those who have assurance, there's a very different attitude. True assurance in Christ We have no problem looking into the truths of the gospel because in that we're also assured even more that we are His. But my focus isn't to point out the characteristics of false assurance. I really want to just highlight for you the attributes of a true assurance. And again, this is different from faith. I want to make this very clear. You can have true faith and still lack a full assurance. This is possible as probably probable throughout your life that this will happen. Faith can be as small as a mustard seed. Remember, Jesus said that. And still be saving faith. It's a gift from God. Faith is touching the hem of Christ's garment in the bustle of a crowd, just saying, I don't have faith to even confront you, but Lord, save me. Faith can be as simple as the thief on the cross saying, Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. That was saving faith. 
It's simply turning to the Lord Jesus as your only hope for salvation. Your only hope, because He truly is. Like the tax collector who beat his breast and said, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. Saving faith. A gift from God. Those people had all been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Not according to their own works. There's nothing they could boast in. And yet you can have true saving faith and never reach an assurance. And yet you should not be discouraged. The Lord will never snuff out a smoldering wick. He'll never break a bruised reed. The first importance of all of us is to come to Jesus Christ in faith. And that's not something that you can muster up. You need to pray to the Holy Spirit, to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that he would give you faith if you lack your faith at this time. And when you see your great need, cry out, Lord, save me, until he does. Every day, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Lord, give me faith, until he does. He will not turn away all who come to him in faith. But the fact remains that after that moment that he gives you faith, you should strive to be as confident in your Christian life as Paul. You should want that. And it's not just Paul. We read in Job. He says, I know my Redeemer lives, and I will see him. David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And what? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That confidence. John said, I have written these things that you might know that you have eternal life. John wrote his gospel so that we would know we have eternal life. So how? How do you do that? I want to close with this bit. How do we know that? We know that, first of all, because we know our Savior. 2 Timothy 2, Paul confidently states, but I know whom I have believed in, and I am persuaded that he is able to guard until that day what he's entrusted to me. Paul knew his Savior. Do you want to know your Savior more? Pray that God gives you a greater understanding of who Jesus is. Read the Gospels. Read about what he did for you. Meditate on the life of Christ. Read godly books about or by other saints who had a love for Christ. Sam Rutherford, John Owen, Jab Packer, John Flavel, so many others had a real abiding love for the man, the God-man from Nazareth. And pray that God gives you that love for Jesus. Because the more you love the man, Jesus, the more sure you are that you are His. Because you can only love Him because Christ is in you. Secondly, these people were abiding in the vine. That's the second reason they knew they were his. They, they were abiding in the vine every day. They're spending time in the Word and prayer. If you're not spending time in the Word and prayer, you're not abiding in the vine. No wonder you're tossed and, and jostled by every little bump in the road. Fill your mind with the Word of God, not the world. Live in prayer. Anticipate and pray for the worship of God on the Lord's day to be powerful in your life. Those who pursue God in this way will not be disappointed. And thirdly, remember the promises of God. 
All through the scriptures, there are promises of God for you as he's covenanted with you to be your God and make you his own people, to shine his face upon you. Paul said that the time of his departure had come. This is kind of travel language, isn't it? I love when I see little kind of correlations to our own life. It's the language of travel. It's my departure time. Melody just flew to Kansas City last week, and you know she didn't just show up at the airport say, I'm here. I mean, she probably would have if we didn't buy her a ticket. But we had to plan that out, and her departure time was certain. She knew at a certain time that flight was leaving, and she had to be there. You know, the time of your death is certain. It's certain. It's not random. There's nothing randomized in the universe. And if the time of your death is certain, that means today it could happen, or it could happen in 80 years, or any time in between. We just don't know. But you need to live as if the time of your departure has come. Certainly to live as Christ and to die as gain, that's true for all of us. And our hearts yearn to be with our Father in heaven. But Paul was confident that his precious Savior awaited him. The man who broke him on the road to Damascus is waiting to lift him up on the road to heaven. And Paul longed to be there. I would ask if you have this certain hope today. Today is the day to embrace the man named Jesus. Without him, you're hopelessly lost, without any chance of coming to God. But Jesus calls you today. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And to reject Jesus, brothers and sisters, is a life of hell, eternal damnation. What a horrible thought. And he calls you to himself. And after he's given you faith, rich and old, you Young and old, rich and poor, we all have one thing in common. We will all die, but we can all have assurance that we are His. Some measure of assurance can be ours. And our eternal hope is this, Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is the last scripture. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. That I will be his God. He will be my son. May this be our hope today. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so 
overwhelmed at the thought that you would be our God and we would be your son, that we would have an inheritance that will be awarded to us by our Lord Jesus himself. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would desire and earnestly seek hard after Jesus Christ. And in so doing, that you would give them an assurance that they are your children. And if they don't have this assurance, that they would diligently pray for faith in Jesus Christ until such a time as they would receive that gift. Lord, open our eyes to your truth. Give us great assurance and great hope in this life. Help us, for we are weak and weary and so fickle in our lives, and you are faithful and true. Let this encourage our souls in Jesus' name.